Mark Twain's book, A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, is a fictional account of Hank Morgan, a Connecticut factory worker who, after being hit in the head with a crowbar, wakes up several centuries earlier in the court of King Arthur. And though this book is not as famous as some of Twain's other works, like The Adventures of Tom Sawyer or or Huckleberry Finn, it has its own share of memorable scenes. One of those scenes that stands out is one in which Hank, the Connecticut Yankee, is traveling the countryside with King Arthur. And at one point, when King Arthur uses a derisive term to address one of the common folk in his kingdom, Hank scolds him, essentially saying to the king, and, and I'm paraphrasing here, Uh, You can't talk to him that way. Uh, You're his brother. Miffed at such a thought, the king shoots back to the Connecticut Yankee to dirt like that. To dirt like that. That's the human heart on display, is it not? Associate myself with someone so beneath me, so under me, so unworthy of my attention and my love and my affection, to dirt like that? That might be our heart. That might be the natural human tendency. But that's not the heart of God. To Hosea, his prophet, God tells him to go love a prostitute. Dirt like that, if there ever was such a thing. To marry her, to set his love upon her, and to stick with her, even if she refuses to clean herself up. Even if she refuses to stop rolling around in the muck and mire of the world even though she insists on pursuing her many lovers rather than remaining faithful and committed to the one that she's been joined to in marriage. And as we've seen, the way in which Hosea was to interact with his prostitute wife ultimately was a picture of God's faithful and covenant-keeping love toward Israel. Though God had set his love upon this small and otherwise unspectacular and otherwise unworthy nation— And though he had clearly laid out his standards for her to live by, and though he had been more than patient with her, and though he had warned her repeatedly, and though he had every right to wholly forsake her and abandon her forever based on her conduct, he didn't. Instead, because of his commitment and his promises to Israel, going all the way back to the times of Abraham, he would never leave her or forsake her. And not because of her and who she was, after all, she was dirt like that, but instead of who he is, a faithful and covenant-keeping God like that. Now, to remind you of where we are in our study of the book of Hosea, tonight we'll find ourselves in the first half of Hosea chapter 2. Lord willing, we will get all the way from verse 2 through verse 13. We'll see how that goes. Knowing that we're in Hosea 2, though, what we know is that we are in the first major section of this book. You'll recall, as I've mentioned before, that this book is broken up into two major sections. The first major section, chapters 1 through 3, we see God's dealings with Israel being typified or illustrated in this real earthly marriage relationship between God's prophet, Hosea, and his prostitute wife, Gomer. In the second half of the book, chapters 4 through 14, which we may get to by 2027 or somewhere around there, we're going to see this back and forth between God and Israel over Israel's apostasy and her spiritual whoredom and God's dealings with this spiritually wayward people. 
Tonight, though, we're still in that first half of the book. We're very much still in that first half of the book, which is very much still that familial setting. And we're going to get a glimpse tonight into Hosea's household. Uh, We're going to get a glimpse into the sounds of Hosea's household, the arguments that would have been happening in his household, the infighting, and all of the rest of what would have been happening within his home. Now, as we've already seen, back to Hosea 1, we saw in Hosea 1 how his household was formed. We saw that the word of the Lord came to Hosea in verse 1 of chapter 1. And in giving Hosea that word, we saw that God commanded Hosea, verse 2, to go take to yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry. And God ordered Hosea to do so, to take this harlot, to take this prostitute, to be his wife, so that he could teach a lesson to Israel about her own spiritual whoredom and idolatry. In fact, that's exactly what we see in verse 2 of chapter 1. He says, go take yourself this wife, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. We saw that Hosea immediately obeyed God's command. There was no foot dragging with Hosea. Hosea wasn't like Jonah running off to Tarshish when he should have gone to Nineveh. Rather, we see in Hosea 1.3 that he immediately followed the Lord's command. So he went, it says in verse 3, and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblium, and she conceived and bore him a son. We saw in Hosea 1 verses 3 through 9 that, that Gomer's wife, the prostitute, then gave birth to three children, only one of whom was Hosea's the other two of which came from her other lovers. God directed Hosea to give these children specific names, but he didn't tell Hosea to name them Tom and Jane and Harry, or even Joshua, Hannah, and Isaiah. No, the names that Hosea was to give these children were far more ominous and bleak. He ordered, God did order Hosea to name these children Jezreel, meaning either bloodshed or scattered, Loruhamah, meaning no mercy, and lo ami, meaning not my people. Now, I've always thought that the Puritans of the 16th and 17th century really took the cake when it comes to sort of out their names for their children. You guys know what I'm talking about? You ever done a web search on puritanical names? I got a few for you. Here are a few actual Puritan names from the 16th and 17th centuries. Praise God. These are all first names. Fear God. Fight the good fight of faith. Job raked out of the ashes. That's a first name. All, a bunch of dashes in between. Kill sin. Dust. Fly fornication. Abstinence. What God will. And then here's one. I've got to take a breath before I say it. If Christ had not died for thee, thou hadst been damned. Who, by the way, no joke, went by Nicholas. So those were actual puritanical names from the 16th and 17th centuries. But note, at least most of those names had hope attached to them. Hope anchored in what Jesus Christ had accomplished on the parents' behalf. The names given by Hosea now, getting back to our context, these children's names were completely devoid of hope. Bloodshed. No mercy. Not my people. Now, Last week, though, things cheered up a bit because we encountered a bit of a hopeful interlude in this otherwise dark account, starting with the first word of verse 10 of chapter 1, yet. And then over the course of those three verses, Hosea 1.10, Hosea 1.11, and Hosea 2.1, we saw the tone change of this 
prophecy. We saw the mood shift to this hopeful future day for Israel. In fact, let's read that passage. Just get our bearings of where we've been. Hosea 1.10. Yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it is said to them, you are not my people, it will be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. And the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be gathered together, and they will appoint for themselves one leader, and they will go up from the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brothers, Ami, and to your sisters, Ruhamah. As we worked our way through that text last week, we saw that though there was familial strife in Hosea's household, which was a representative of the tension and the strife that existed between God and his people Israel, God hadn't given them up. God hadn't given up on Israel. God hasn't given up on Israel. God has a plan for Israel. And as we saw from those verses last week, God was promising a future restoration of his people. He was promising a renewal or providing a renewal of his promises. He was predicting a reconciliation of the divisions that then existed between Israel and Judah. He was promising the reinstatement of a king who we saw was the Messiah of Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ. And last we saw that he was promising a return to the land. And as we saw last week, these are future-oriented prophecies in that passage from last time, which will one day come to fruition in the future millennial kingdom of the Messiah of Israel, the Savior of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now with that, we've worked our way up to the front door of tonight's text. But we're not only at the front door of tonight's text, we're actually walking into the front door of Hosea's house. And last week, we were looking at the future of Israel. Tonight's text, we're going back to the 8th century B.C. Picture it with me. We're walking on some dusty side trail in Samaria, up to the front of Hosea's house, this prophet of Israel, his house with his prostitute wife and the three kids. And we're going to see much will be said here about Israel and her unfaithful, unfaithfulness to God, but it all starts in Hosea's fractured and chaotic home. Now, I'm like prefacing my prefaces here. As we get ready to jump into this text, we have to remember as we're working through this that we're going to be continually straddling these two worlds and straddling these two realities in this text and in future texts in the book of Hosea. On the one hand, we have this real marriage between two humans, a real husband, a real wife, Hosea and Gomer. And that real marriage is now really on the rocks because of Gomer's infidelity. But on the other hand, what we have is this ultimate marriage that's being typified here, namely the marriage between God and his people Israel, which was entered into on the peninsula at Sinai many hundred years before. And just as Hosea was affected by his wife, Gomer's adultery, God was affected by his people's, Israel's adultery. And by that, I don't mean that God was off somewhere in in the corner of his room crying into his pillow, but what I do mean is what scripture teaches, which is that God, on the one hand, is loving and patient and merciful and and shows those to his, his creation. On the other hand, he is a God who is holy and jealous and wrathful, and he can be provoked to act in response to the sin and disobedience of his people, which is what we have here in Hosea. So as, as best we can, I'm asking you all tonight and in future lessons, we need to hold on to these 
two strands of the story. The story of Hosea and Gomer and the story of God and Israel as this text will take us on this journey where we're toggling back and forth between those two realities. So we start with the opening scene in verse 2 of Hosea 2. Here's our first new material for the night. It says, Contend with your mother, contend, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. Now, in the immediate context here, what is happening is that Hosea is this forlorn and, and heartbroken husband. His wife, Gomer, has been unfaithful to him. She bore him Jezreel. She bore him at least that son. But then she went out and slept with other men. She'd been unfaithful, meaning she was not only a prostitute, she was also an adulteress. Now, we don't know all the details of how many lovers there were or how Gomer was found out or how long these adulterous relationships went on. All we know is what we see from this text is that Hosea is portrayed as this forsaken and jilted husband whose marriage covenant with Gomer has been violated. Undoubtedly, he is sad and angry and heartbroken. And the situation is so bad between this husband and this wife, the relationship is so broken down, it's so deteriorated, that the parties are no longer communicating with each other. Instead, they're actually sending messages to each other through the children. That's what we have here. Hosea and Gomer are no longer on talking terms, and so Hosea specifically is using the children to pass along this important message to their mom. And the message is this, contend, which he emphasizes a few words later by saying it again, contend. They don't have underlining, they don't have yellow highlighters in Hebrew, but the way they do emphasize what is being said is by repeating the word, contend, contend. So, The future family reunion that we saw in the verses we looked at last week, that hopeful family reunion, is now put on the shelf. It's put off to the side. Because here in verse 2, we're immediately thrown into a family quarrel. With the children quarreling on the husband's behalf as they address the wife. Uh, With the children now serving as witnesses against their mother. With the children now being asked to serve as a mouthpiece for their father's frustration with their mother all of which culminates with this statement, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. Now, ultimately what's happening here in this family strife, what's being pictured here in this family strife between Hosea and Gomer, is also God stating his case against Israel. This is a riv, R-I-V is how you'd spell that, which is the Hebrew term for a public accusation, a remonstrance, You could even call it a lawsuit. In fact, flip with me, if you would, back to Isaiah chapter 3. There are a couple other notable examples of these reeves, these public accusations that we see in other contexts. Look at Isaiah 3 with me for a similar example of what we have in Hosea 2. Isaiah 3, verse 13. The Lord arises to contend, there it is, And stands to judge the people. The Lord enters into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The plunder of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the face of the the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. That's an example of one of these public accusations, a reeve, a lawsuit that is being declared here in the context of Isaiah. Go with me now to Jeremiah chapter 2. We're going to see another one of these. 
Just to show you that what Hosea is doing here is not unique to Hosea. We see it elsewhere, this form of address elsewhere in the Old Testament. Look at Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah 2, starting at verse 4. Jeremiah 2, 4. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What injustice did your fathers find in me that they went far from me? And walked after emptiness and became empty. They did not say, Where is the Lord who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, who led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and of pits, through a land of drought and of deep darkness, through a land that no one crossed and where no man dwelt? I brought you into the fruitful land to eat its fruit and its good things, but you came and defiled my land, and my inheritance you made an abomination. The priest did not say, Where is the Lord? And those who handled the law did not know me. The rulers also transgressed against me, and the prophets prophesied by Baal, and walked after things that did not profit. And now look at verse 9. Therefore, I will contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your sons' sons, I will contend. That's what's happening here in Hosea 2, too. Through the setting of Hosea's marriage to adulterous Gomer, God is pleading his case against Israel. But at the same time, as he's doing so, there is this subtle ring of hope. Because as God is pleading with Israel in, in the second half of verse 2, we're going to see that he's, as he's pleading against Israel, he's actually pleading for her to repent of her adulterous and sinful ways. Look at the second part of the verse. After he says, she's not my wife and I'm not her husband, he says, and let her put away her harlotry from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. So here, the husband, Hosea, still appears intent on pursuing reconciliation, which portrays the depths of God's love for Israel. Just as Hosea had grounds to divorce his unfaithful wife under the law of that day, God had grounds to finally and forever divorce Israel, to be done with her, to wash his hands of her. But that's not what we see here. Rather, we see the heartbreak and the exasperation building to the place where he's inviting his adulterous bride to repent. Put your harlotries away from your face. Put your adulteries away from between your breasts. See, the face and the breasts were part of the female body in the seductive women of those times, and we can just say it, frankly, our times, that people would draw attention to by dressing themselves up and adorning themselves in those areas of the female body. Jeremiah 4.30 says, And you, O desolate one, what will you do? Although you dress in scarlet, although you decorate yourself with ornaments of gold, although you enlarge your eyes with paint, in vain you make yourself beautiful. Ezekiel 23.40 describes a similar scene of spiritual adultery and refers to women who painted their eyes and decorated themselves with ornaments. Proverbs 6.25, referring to the adulteress, seductress says, do not let her capture you with her eyelids. So here, the husband's desire in Hosea 2 is that she remove those objects related to her adultery and her harlotry from her. And that which she needed to remove from her face and that which she needed to remove from between her breasts actually signified what she needed was a change of heart. Meaning what we have here is this gracious yet pained attempt to avoid a permanent separation 
It's a gracious yet pained attempt as a last-ditch effort to avoid a divorce. But then the tone changes again. And we see that Hosea's patience toward Gomer, and by extension, God's patience toward Israel, will eventually wear thin. It'll eventually run out if the bride does not repent. In verse 3, we see that if this harlot, this adulteress, refuses to repent and refuses to return to her husband, several consequences will result. Look at verse 3. He says, Or I will strip her naked and expose her as on the day when she was born. I will also make her like a wilderness, make her like desert land, and slay her with thirst. Applied to Hosea and Gomer, this is a threat of publicly shaming his adulterous wife, stripping her naked, exposing her as on the day when she was born, and abandoning her as he no longer provides for her, leaving her to waste away like a desert land and with thirst. Harsh? Yes. A chauvinistic display of rage and violence? No. In fact, everything that's described here would have been in keeping with a husband's rights under the Mosaic law when his wife committed adultery. And everything that's described here, again, is not confined only to this relationship between Hosea and Gomer. Again, it's this picture of God stating to Israel that if she refused to repent of her wicked and idolatrous ways, if she refused to return to him, he had no choice but to mete out his divine justice, to strip her, to expose her, to make her like the wilderness and like desert land. And why? So that she would ultimately be reminded that it is he, God, not the pagan gods that she was bowing down to who controlled the fertility of her land, that the land that she, Israel, was living in was his. He sent the rain. He caused the soil to be fertile. He was the sole provider of everything. She was merely a tenant. And she, Israel, needed to be reminded of this by being brought low and stripped down and disgraced. Now, we're going to discuss him by name in in just a few more verses, but it's worth spending some time here addressing Baal. Baal, you could say, if I want to save a syllable. Baal was the god of the Canaanites, the original inhabitants of the land, who Israel should have driven out from the promised land, but many of whom remained. And at the heart of the Baal pantheon was this so-called god named Hadad, who was god of the rain and of the storms. And he was manifested through these local, or these smaller local Baals in shrines and high places. And according to Canaanite tradition, these little gods would impregnate the land, the mother goddess, and make the land fertile. And Baal worship included shrine prostitution, where, where worshipers believed that they were showcasing the marriage of Baal with the earth. So Baal was seen as the source of all f- fertility, and worshiping that god would ensure good harvests and prosperity in, in this very agrarian economy. And of course, Worship of Baal, as we see all throughout the Old Testament, was this perennial pull away from true worship in Israel. And so what would happen is in each cycle of the agricultural year, that would present a brand new temptation for the Israelites to look to Baal for provision rather than to Yahweh. Each year, we see it tragically laid out in the Old Testament. Their logic was the same. Something like, 
Baal is the fertility god. We need fertility for the land. We need Baal, so we're going to worship Baal. Well, quite apart from the corrosive infidelity that was at the heart of that type of worship, the premise of the logic in that worship was fundamentally flawed because it wasn't Baal who was providing for Israel. It was God. It was Yahweh. It was the Lord, the Lord alone who provided for his people. And not only had he provided for his people, he'd lavished immense blessings on his people, but as we're going to see a little bit later, they had totally forgotten that. Back to our text, as we continue on into verse 4, we see another threat being made against the wife if she refuses to repent. It says, also, I will have no compassion on her children because they are children of harlotry. Now, applied to Hosea, there's, there's an important thing to note here. Note that he calls the children her children, not my children. This is further evidence of what we confirmed a couple weeks ago when I pointed out that Lo Ruhama and Lo Ami, the two later children, were not Hosea's children by blood, but instead were the product of Gomer's adultery. Now, as children of a harlot, Gomer's children would, in, in this culture, in this time, naturally suffer shame and ostracism and embarrassment to go along with the poverty and the disease that surely were a part of it as well. But now they're also being told by Hosea that if there's no repentance, they will no longer experience compassion, it says, from the head of their household, Hosea, meaning he's going to disown them. And so it would be for Israel. The spiritual harlotry of earlier generations of Israelites had been passed down to more recent generations of Israelites, and now all the children of Israel, up to the point of Hosea's day, were going to pay the penalty for their forefathers and their foremothers' spiritual fornication. The children, in other words, were now included in the indictment against their mother. They started, verse 2, by contending against their mother, but now we see that they actually have no more testimony to give. They are not only children of harlotry by descent or by blood, but as the generations carried on, and we see this if we do any fair reading of the Old Testament, but with each successive generation of Israelites, these children eventually themselves got wrapped up with these sinful syncretistic practices where they they claimed to be worshiping Yahweh, but they were shacking up with lesser gods. So, The entire household of Israel has been tainted with spiritual adultery. Uh, Not just the mother, but also the children. And that's why we see what we see here in verse 4, where God is saying through Hosea, I will have no compassion on her children, because they are the children of harlotry. Now we turn to verse 5. And here we see the ultimate expression of the blinding effects of sin, both For Gomer and for Israel. Look at what it says in verse 5. For their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who gave me, who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Talk about a twisting of the knife. For Hosea and for Gomer, what is being revealed here is that not only is she an adulteress, she's a serial adulteress. She's gone after, the word is plural here, lovers. Not a lover, but but lovers. 
Uh, This was no one-night stand. Uh, This was a pattern of promiscuity that's being revealed here. Uh, This was her way of life. She's not only a harlot, she is committed to her harlotry. And not only that, as if that weren't hard enough for this husband to hear, she's saying, all those things that I have, the bread that keeps my stomach from growling, the water that keeps my thirst quenched, uh, the wool that keeps me warm in the winter, the flax which produces linen garments which keep me cool in the summer, the oil that keeps my lamp lit, the drink, the, the wine that helps with my sour stomach or helps me sleep at night, that didn't come from you, Hosea. That came from other lovers. And, and not only my other lovers, they're, they're not just my lovers, they're my providers. Not you, hubby. Can you imagine the size of the lump that must have been forming in Hosea's throat at this point? His wife is not only cheating on him, she's using his credit card to fund the whole thing, and she's not even giving her husband credit for that. And now let's carry it over to the relationship between God and Israel, because the same thing is being called out here. Israel is going after many false gods in the region, my lovers. And not only that, Israel is crediting those false gods as being its benefactors, stubbornly and blasphemously declaring that what it had, what they had as a nation, came from the false deities of that region, which is shameful. But the Lord had not yet spoken his final word. He wouldn't let Israel prevail in her attempts not only to bite the hand that fed her, but to ignore the fact that the hand that fed her was not that of her lovers, but rather was Yahweh's. God wouldn't let this type of thinking run rampant. Israel's blasphemous and adulterous ways would ultimately be put to a stop, which we see in verses 6 and 7. Look at 6. Therefore, behold, I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She will pursue her lovers, but she will not overtake them, and she will seek them, but will not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. A few things are being described in in these verses. First, whether it's Hosea or God in, in this setting, we can apply it to both. It's showing his determination to block his bride's unrestrained lusts. That's what it's meant in in verse 6. Therefore, behold, I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. Her lustful thoughts and intentions are so out of control that her husband literally has to wall her in, shutting up his whoring wife in their home so that she'll no longer be able to ply the trade on the street. This is a graphic, admittedly graphic, revealing and sad scene. Second observation about this passage is that the husband, whether we're talking about Hosea or God, is it says he's going to cause his bride's lovers to disappear. That's verse 7. She will pursue her lovers, but she will not overtake them. And she will seek them, but will not find them. Now, no more is said here about how the husband's going to make this happen, There's no sense from the language here about any sort of undertones of foul play that are going to happen here. 
Uh, The major point is that his wife is so insistent on seeking out other lovers that he has to go to the extreme, not only to wall her in, but to make sure that she doesn't find them. Which leads to the third aspect of what's being described here. The harlot eventually getting frustrated and turning back to her husband. Look at the end of verse 7. It says, Then she will say, I will go back to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. So she's been walled in. Her lovers have been hidden from her. She has nowhere to turn. And so then and only then does she go back to her husband. Of course, this is not the genuine repentance that Hosea is pursuing, that God is pursuing earlier in this passage. For this harlot to say, fine, I'll go back to my husband because it was better for me then than it is now, is just another way of saying, I'm not remorseful at all. It just so happened that those greener pastures that I thought were greener, they're not greener. They started to wilt. So now I'm back. So feed me and clothe me and take care of me until I get a better offer from somewhere else down the road. Her attitude, her motivation are rooted in pure pragmatism. Not repentance, not remorse. And this scene is similar to what Jeremiah was speaking into with Judah back in Jeremiah 2. I know I made you turn to Jeremiah 2 earlier. I should have told you to keep your finger there. Turn with me back to Jeremiah chapter 2, which has a similar marriage picture, marriage scene in view. Jeremiah chapter 2, and in the heading in my Bible here, it's not inspired, but it's, it's telling. It says, Judah's apostasy. So we have something similar going on in the, in the southern kingdom as we do in the north with Hosea. But look at Jeremiah 2.2. 2, 2, 2 kind of sets the marital illustration that's being given here. We'll just start in verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Go and proclaim in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord. I remember concerning you the devotion of your youth, the love of your betrothals. Now we're in the marriage context. You're following after me in the wilderness through a land not sown. So he's kind of throwing it back to the honeymoon phase between God and Judah. But now fast forward up to Jeremiah 2, 26 through 28. And here what we see is Judah as a nation crawling back to God. They're on the verge of deportation to Babylon, and look what it says. As the thief is shamed when he is discovered, so the house of Israel is shamed. They, their kings, their princes, and their priests, and their prophets, who say to a tree, you are my father, and to a stone, you gave me birth, for they have turned their back to me and not their face. But in the time of their trouble, they will say, arise and save us. But where are your gods which you made for yourself? Let them arise if they can save you in the time of your trouble." But according to the number of your cities are your gods, O Judah. And now note this. And note the parallels to Hosea 2.7. Hosea 2.7. But in the time of their trouble, they will say, Arise and save us. But where are your gods who you made for yourself? Doesn't that sound a lot like Hosea 2.7? Both in the north and the south, what you're seeing are both apostate nations reaching the 
end of their rope, seeing the futility in pursuing other gods. The southern tribes of Judah come crawling back to God in the book of Jeremiah, just as Gomer's crawling back to Hosea here in Hosea 2, and just as Israel is coming crawling back to God in Hosea 2.7. And as she comes crawling back, God, through Hosea, notes something else about his bride pictured here. She's not only adulterous, she's not only wayward, she's not only immoral, she's forgetful. Look at verse 8. For she does not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the new wine, and the oil, and lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Everything she had been given had been given to her by her husband. In Gomer's case, this meant Hosea. In Israel's case, this meant God. But somehow she had forgotten this. And remember, I mean, these are, in verse 8 here, staple crops, basic items of provision, which show how preposterous this wife's error was in not acknowledging who it was who had actually given her these things. I've heard that there was a preacher who used to stand behind this pulpit who was fond of making the statement that sin makes you stupid. A couple of times I think that was mentioned by Pastor Gill. No kidding. And that's what's happening here. The sin of her harlotry has made this adulterous wife stupid. She's not thinking right. At some level, she thinks it's her lovers who are providing her with bread and water and wool and flax and oil and drink, when in reality, it's the one who truly loves her, her husband, who has given her these things. Of course, we see this even today, as not only unbelievers in the world refuse to recognize the goodness of the Lord and and watering the earth and filling our bellies and giving us sleep, but even as believers today, as Christians we can get to that place of forgetfulness too, which is all the more reason in our age, in our day, in the church age, to be studying God's word, to be around a community of people who can point you to God's word and to make it a part of your regular daily routine to give prayers of thanks to this God. Back to Hosea. Another important thing to note about this verse, verse 8, when it says, for she does not know, the, the Hebrew verb there is yada. Well, in its context, that verb means she has willfully forgotten her husband. She has intentionally put him and his provision and his love for her out of her mind. Applied to Hosea and Gomer, that's simply adding insult to injury. That's adding layers and layers of sin and wickedness to what's already exposed there. Applied to God and to Israel, the same thing could be said. But with the additional layer being that Israel's so-called forgetfulness about Yahweh's provision is not only disingenuous, it calls to mind the warnings Moses gave to the Israelites many centuries prior before they entered the promised land. Deuteronomy 8, I don't think we have time to turn there, but I'll just read Deuteronomy 8 as Moses gives this warning to the Israelites before they go to the promised land. He says, beware that you do not forget the Lord your God. By not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I'm commanding you today. Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord, your God, who brought you out from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. See, the people of Israel 
were not to be so preoccupied with their wealth that they forgot God or claimed credit for what God had given them. Which is why Moses would give them further words of warning in Deuteronomy 28, verses 47 and 48, which says, Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and a glad heart for the abundance of all things, therefore you shall serve your enemies, whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst and nakedness and in the lack of all things. And he will put an iron yoke on your neck until he has destroyed you. Everything the wife pictured in Hosea 2.8 that she had been given, grain, new wine, oil, silver, and gold, had been given to her not by her lovers, but by her husband, and ultimately God. And she'd forgotten it. Not only that, she'd intentionally forgotten it. And not only that, but in the case of Israel, even more salt is rubbed in the wound when it says that the silver and gold that God had lavished upon them, they used for Baal, meaning they used the very precious elements that God had put in the earth for them to extract to form molten images, graven images, to worship a false god. They constructed false images to worship a false god, which was spiritual adultery in peak form. So God rightfully says what he says in verses 9 and 10 in response to all that. He says, Therefore I will take back my grain at harvest time and my new wine in its season. I will also take away my wool and my flax given to cover her nakedness. And then I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one will rescue her out of my hand. In verse 9, God is saying he's taking back all these basic items of provision that he had provided. Uh, The wool will be gone, now exposing her to the cold. The flax will be gone, now exposing her to the heat. The grain will be gone, now exposing her to the hunger. The new wine will be gone, now exposing her to thirst and remedies for certain ailments. Perhaps the Lord was going to take these away by allowing crops to fail. Uh, Perhaps the Lord was going to take these away by allowing invading armies to ravage. The text doesn't tell us. But the main point here is that God was taking back these provisions and taking them back forcefully because of the refusal of Israel to acknowledge where those things had come from. The bride had previously considered those items to be hers. Verse 5. She thought they came from her lovers. But God is taking them back. And as he does so, he points out, no, they came from me. In fact, if you look at verse 5 real quickly, the second half it says, look at all these lowercase my statements. I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool, my flax, my oil, my drink. And then you go over to verse 9, and now look at that. All the my's are capitalized. My new wine My grain, says God, my wool, my flax. You thought it was yours, it's actually mine. And the result of taking all this provision back, as we see in verse 9, is that these items had been given to cover her nakedness. They will no longer do so. She'll be left naked and exposed. Now, in our modern, hyper-eroticized culture, Um, we might see nakedness and we think sensuality or sexuality. That's not anything of what's happening here. This is referring to shame. Public displays of nudity in these days were always shameful. And the judgment that God was about to bring on Israel was going to put them to shame publicly for all the surrounding peoples and lands to see. And then even building on that in verse 10, he says, then I will uncover her lewdness 
in the sight of her lovers, and no one will rescue her out of my hand. What's being portrayed here is this scene of this ashamed and embarrassed husband dragging his adulterous wife into the town square, parading his adulterous wife before them, exposing her lewdness to them, publicly testifying to her crimes of infidelity, putting her to shame. And for Israel, they were about to go through such a season of national shaming. They were about to become an object lesson, or as earlier Old Testament prophecies state, a proverb. They were going to become a byword to all the watching nations. They were going to be like that disobedient child whose ears burn with embarrassment as he's let out of the grocery store with kids about the same age to go be disciplined out in the car. Israel would be hauled off into this foreign land, the land of the Assyrians, for all to see. Just as Gomer was exposed by Hosea, Israel was exposed by Yahweh and now faced his judgment with her lovers, meaning all the surrounding pagan cultures, now standing on the roadside, gawking at her as she was led away. It gets even worse, though, because as those other nations watch Israel being led into captivity here in verse 10, what God says at the end here is pretty startling. He says, and no one will rescue her out of my hand. No one. No one else can stop this from happening. Her fate is sealed. Her plight is hopeless. This can't be undone. And the list of bleak realities keep piling up. We see in verse 11, he says, I will also put an end to all her gaiety, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her festal assemblies. Now, we know that earlier in Israel's history, God had laid out in some detail the feasts and the festivities that his people were to participate in as um, celebrations, as acts of thanksgiving for God's provision, to celebrate his mighty acts and works of redemption. Deuteronomy 16, we see the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of Weeks and the, the Feast of Booths laid out. In various places in the Old Testament, we see new moons being mentioned, not in a negative way, but in a positive way. Sabbaths, we know, were simply those weekly days of rest prescribed in the Old Testament Law codes, like in Exodus 20, verse 10, and Exodus 23, 12. Now, each of those practices, feasts, like we see here in verse 11, festal assemblies, new moons, Sabbaths, they were initially God-given occasions to worship, to celebrate. But tragically, they'd been co-opted by Israel for her pagan purposes as she attempted to blend in with the surrounding culture by blending in with the surrounding culture's worship practices. And that never works. That never works. To blend pure forms of worship with the pagan forms of worship that are out there in the world. It didn't work in the, the Israel of Hosea's day, and it doesn't work in the church age today. What fellowship does light have with darkness? The answer, of course, is none. And so God here is saying, effectively, I'm over it, putting an end to it. I'm putting an end not only to the, to the gaiety, which is kind of a, a blanket term for all that's happening here. I'm putting an end to the festivals and the, and, and the Sabbaths and the new moon. Um, but now, in verse 12, I'm actually going to put an end to the bounty, the food that's needed to make those feasts and festivals happen. Look at verse 12. He says, I will destroy her vines and fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. 
and I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field will devour them. And what this is saying is that Israel's prized vineyards and fig trees would eventually go to seed, turning into briar patches, weed gardens, which would eventually be devoured by the beasts of the field. And those grapes and figs, those were essential staple items as they were harvested in the late summer to fuel things like the Feast of Tabernacles, but no more. Without grapes, without figs, these festivals, including specifically the Feast of Tabernacles, were going to grind to a halt. But Israel knew this was going to happen. This should not have been any surprise to them. Because earlier, back in the Pentateuch, we see these agricultural curses that are predicted and prophesied if Israel goes wayward. You can just jot down Leviticus 26.20 and Deuteronomy 28.39 and 40. Those are curses that God pronounces if Israel goes wayward. A sad outcome that was predicted long ago during the days of Moses had now come to fruition in the days of Hosea. Now last we get to verse 13. It says, I will punish her for the days of the Baals when she used to offer sacrifices to them and adorn herself with her earrings and jewelry and follow her lovers so that she forgot me, declares the Lord. Now, the first part of this verse is really a summary of all that we've already been covering, not only this evening, but in the series Faithful God, Hosea, up to this point. Israel was about to be punished by being taken into captivity by the Assyrians, and this punishment would stem from their worship of the Baals. That is, Israel's unapologetic, unreserved worship of these false Canaanite deities, which they did by offering sacrifices to them, it says, and adorning themselves with earrings and jewelry as they followed their lovers. What I'd like to emphasize, though, as we close are those last words, so that she forgot me. What God is saying here is, they forgot me. My own people forgot me. Now, surely the people of Israel hadn't intellectually forgotten about God. Certainly they could still recite the old stories about Abraham and Moses and David. The way that our children over there can recite stories about Jesus and the apostles. But these Israelites, what is really being articulated here is they were forgetting about God in day-to-day life. They were suffering from practical amnesia, which today goes by such terms as practical atheism or the, the religion of the day, moral therapeutic deism. In the end, what this showcases is that Israel as a nation and as a people didn't want God. They wanted his blessings. They wanted his stuff. They were like the woman who marries the man for his wealth. They were a spiritual gold digger. But then when another man came along promising them more wealth, or another God came along promising them more blessing, agricultural blessing, they'd go to him. And when none of those ploys to to gain more wealth or to gain more success or more acclaim with those other gods didn't work out, she'd crawl back to her husband. The reality is she never loved God, her husband. She never even loved her lovers. Rather, she loved herself. That's Israel. 
Our takeaway point for tonight, though, is this. That if we're not careful, that may not only be Israel, that might be us. Don't be like Israel. Blanket, no-duh statement of the night. Don't be like Israel. Don't let the grimy paws of half-in, half-out religiosity grab hold of you. Don't view or approach God opportunistically as merely a source of blessing. Rather, view him as he is, as the source of your life, the very source of your life. Cast away all the idols that still take up residence in your heart, whether those idols be anchored in lust or greed or alcohol or laziness or pride or gluttony or workaholism or self-image or materialism, on and on it goes. Instead, commit to living a life of pure and undistracted focus on and zeal for God. Don't ever put yourself in a situation or a position like the Israelites had here where God might say of you, as he said to the Israelites in Hosea's day, but she forgot me, or he forgot me. Rather, remember, to borrow a phrase from later in Hosea, Hosea 2.20, Remember that you know the Lord. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ here this evening, you know the Lord. You know the same Lord that's mentioned here in the book of Hosea. So commit. Commit to living for him. Commit to loving him. Commit to serving him faithfully in each and every area of your life and each and every day of your life. That's our racehorse tour through Hosea 2, 2 through 13 this evening. Why don't we go to the Lord in prayer? God, we thank you for this privilege that we've had today to unpack your word, to sit under your word, to learn from your word, and I pray that we would grow from your word. God, we know that the book of Hosea has a specific setting and context, and it's addressed to a certain people on a certain continent during a certain century, But we also know that there are eternal truths in your word that we can glean from, learn from, and grow from in our day. We know that you put the book of Hosea in the canon of scripture for a reason. We know that all scripture is profitable and and useful for the servant of God. I ask today that you would help us to take what we've learned today, to understand what it means to have an, an uncompromised loyalty to you, a zeal for living for you and for your purposes, to not be those people like the, day, the Israelites of Hosea's day who you would say, they've forgotten about me, but rather those people that you would look to and say, well done, good and faithful servants. God, help us to be those faithful servants this week to serve the Lord Jesus Christ faithfully and with zeal in all that we do, and may you be greatly glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.